question is if we're not go if if the politics are such that we're not going to have this program be reauthorized and the called the data record program um, what else should we be looking at in in an effort to uh, make sure America is is protected from uh, overseas, principally terrorists, but other actors um, who are in contacting Americans and uh, for nefarious purposes. Mm -hmm. And do we have the law enforcement capability to address that with absent some tool like this, I think is, is the question. Episode 304 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we express here uh, are not those of our institutions, our clients, our, uh, our relatives, uh, dogs, uh, or children. Uh, uh, today, I'm going to interview Glenn Gerstel, uh, who is the former general counsel at NSA. Uh, he's now a senior advisor uh, for the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, and uh, it's uh, uh, Glenn Gerstel Unbound. So welcome, Glenn. Uh, you're, you're free of government uh, constraints, and I'm guessing that means you'll be the same Glenn we've always known. Absolutely. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Okay. And uh, joining us for the news roundup, uh, Paul Rosenzweig, founder of Red Branch Consulting, uh, hanging out right now in Costa Rica, uh, which apparently doesn't have a coronavirus problem, uh, at least not that we've found. Um, Paul, great to have you. Great to have you here. We have our first case, but where I am, I it's impossible to get. I'm very pleased. Nate Jones, on the other hand, uh, co-founder of Culprit Partners, is in more or less ground zero for the U.S. coronavirus uh, um, uh, infections. Uh, you're in Seattle, right, Nate? That's right. I hope my mask doesn't interfere with the audio quality, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, one of the great things about uh, podcasts is that you, you can keep listening to them and eventually we'll do them all completely remotely uh, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, we'll just sound like we're in the same room. Uh, uh, Nick Weaver is here, uh, a senior researcher and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. Nick, good to have you. Good to have you. I'll be sure to include a photo for the the show notes on my Corona bunker. It's well stocked. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host of the of the program today. And why don't we jump right in? Uh, I, uh, Nate, there was a great story about uh, uh, two two Chinese nationals who got caught through a mix of um, uh, good uh, s forensic work and good uh, witness uh, work, uh, um, uh, laundering mass amounts of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency for the North Koreans who had stolen a quarter million dollars worth. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, it looks as though the U.S. government has started to find ways to get behind the uh, efforts to anonymize those transactions pretty effectively. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting forensics um, investigation. I'm interested to hear what Nick in particular has to say about that. Um, they've charged the two Chinese individuals who apparently laundered over $100 million worth of this cryptocurrency with money laundering. And they also unsealed a, a civil forfeiture complaint. And um, that, at least in my opinion, is likely to be where the action is at. The, the prosecution, the criminal charges are, you know, seem to be of the name and shame variety that we've seen before. 
and don't tend to produce a, a, a whole lot of results against these these hard to reach targets in foreign countries that are unlikely to cooperate with this. But the civil forfeiture obviously, you know, has has very different standards um, and different burden of proof, which makes things a bit easier on the government. And um, you know, as long as they can reach the funds. Uh, they can actually impose some some penalties on these individuals. The funds are are <clears throat> many of them have gone on to uh, big banks uh, right. in China, and uh, if those China uh, Chinese banks have uh, correspondent relationships with U.S. banks, which practically everybody has to have, uh, yeah. there's a there's a jurisdictional hook for pulling all of that back and <clears throat> for you know uh, saying to the uh, Chinese banks, uh, gee. Yeah, sucks to be you, but uh, you're going to have to uh, cough it up. Fork it over, yeah. So it's it actually has some real teeth for one. So it'll be interesting to see how this this plays out. Obviously, you know, in in some of the other criminal cases they've they've pursued against other hackers, they haven't had this this capability available to them where you know funds weren't stolen or weren't easily accessible. And so, um, but these cases where they are, it. it it provides some real, real power to the Justice Department. So, Nick, what's new here technically? Uh, that they got around to doing something that they should have been doing five years ago. So, oh, so this is this, this is a, a Trump administration triumph. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. So the forensics is actually fairly straightforward um, coin tracing because these guys weren't actually doing anything really sophisticated. They were just basically churning the cryptocurrency amongst themselves for a while and then sending it to the exchanges, selling it out, turning it into iTunes gift cards and uh, using that for a lot of the money flow. So this is remarkable that such little sophistication was required because the cryptocurrency community just basically never cared to block this from happening in the first place. Um, I think the civil forfeiture case will be uh, less successful than you'd like in the end because I'm willing to bet that the you can try to get the account money back from the Chinese banks by account number, but the Chinese banks will have said it already moved on. And so we'll be left with something that gives you a good case title along the lines of United States versus 1855.6 pounds of American paddlefish meat. So it's it's it you you would think that was the case, but I've had cases involving forfeiture and funds, and the law is if the money had a cup of coffee in your institution before it went someplace else, you owe it all. The guy you gave it to owes it all. The guy who gave it to you owes it all back to the U.S. government. The, the U.S. government's view is um, you can never un uh, you can never wash off the taint of having had this money, uh, this this uh, unauthorized uh, funds in your institution. So that's the law in the United States. Uh, so these guys are uh, these these banks may find themselves on the hook even if the money did. Jump out of their uh, uh, accounts quite quickly. We'll see. 
Okay. Yes, it will be fun to watch. Uh, I'd have a little more confidence if the uh, Sovereign District of New York were bringing this case. They, uh, they've they got a <laughs> lot of really good lawyers who've done a lot of this. Looks like it's going to be coming out of the District of Columbia, and they've got good lawyers, but they are not uh, – they don't have the mix of arrogance and competence that you find in the Southern District of New York. All right. Um, Locate X is a – commercial mechanism and using commercially acquired uh, location data that is now being sold to law enforcement uh, uh, by a company called Babel Street. Uh, and it essentially allows them to do geofencing to say who was in the neighborhood of the burglary when the burglary happened, or maybe who was in the neighborhood of all three burglaries when all three burglaries happened. Uh, and they can get this because it's for sale. They can just buy it, uh, which raises questions about whether it's an end run around Carpenter and the warrant requirement that was imposed on uh, information collected uh, from uh, people's phones pinging the uh, the cell towers. Uh, uh, Paul, what do you think? Uh, is this going to uh, turn into uh, what I've been predicting for a while, which is a, a just an enormous Vietnam-style quagmire for the Supreme Court as they try to figure out how their dumb uh, decision in Carpenter is actually going to be applied. Well, uh, I'm not so sure it'll be their quagmire, but it's certainly going to be their Gordian knot, if you will. Uh, What this this recognizes is the reality that location services are inherently commercial in nature today. And unless we're going to uh, prohibit the government from participating in the commercial sector on an equal footing with every other consumer of information in America, i.e., you know, Google, Facebook, uh, you, Steptoe, me, whatever, uh, the government will be able to buy uh, from any number of services that which it cannot secure by warrant. Uh, the only real benefit to this change that I can see is that it does impose some modest resource constraints on the government, which is to say that I'm sure that the services cost money. And if I were the commercial providers, I'd be charging the government an arm and a leg for the a warrant avoidance value that I give them. Uh, and so they won't yeah, be doing it all the time, but that's about it, really. This data is everywhere, and that means it's going to be cheap too. I, I, you know, there are lots and lots of advertisers who want this data and who will pay for it, and lots of people who can collect it because you know we just leave location on after we say, oh yeah, I guess you do need location, and then we leave it on and it collects it uh, pretty much all the time. Um, uh, so the, the, I think the data is actually going to turn out to be pretty cheap and easy to get. But I think your fundamental point is the right one. Uh, It would be a policy disaster to say, oh, well, if you sell burglary tools and you want to know who was in the vicinity of all three burglaries so that you can advertise to them, that's fine. We don't have any problem with that. But if the, if law enforcement wants access to that to actually catch the burglars, they need to go uh, uh, jump through a bunch of um, uh, hoops on warrants. Uh, it, it makes very Think, think of sense. the line drawing problem, Stuart. I mean, if we're going to start – Fencing out the government from certain commercial activity, you know, where's the line? Will uh, sophisticated purchasing sophisticated data analytics uh, to identify travel trends for the purpose of finding 
terrorists uh, be out of bounds? Will using Google search eventually be out of bounds? I can't see a principled way to do it. And I can't see any reason to think of the government in the commercial sector as any place other than a bona fide purchaser for value of a, of a service provided. Yeah, but um, I, I think you can be guaranteed that the ACLU and the AF, EFF will be running to the court and saying they've made a mockery of your decision. You've got for the sake of your dignity as a judicial institution to stop this. And uh, the court will be will resonate to that. Uh, it's just that this is this really is Vietnam. You just you, you the deeper you go, the uh, the deeper the water around you get uh, gets and the harder it's going to be to find a principled way through the swamp. It also brings up an important point that companies are lying when they're calling this sort of data anonymous. So they allege that this is anonymous location data. It's not. It's pseudonymous. So pseudonym 1350 visited the Steptoe office at 9 a.m. and then went blah, blah, blah. And that's actually why it's useful for law enforcement is because you geofence the burglary, you see who was there, you see where they go to, and now you know who it is because you now you found their house. Well, you could subpoena and that so, too. You could also subpoena the information uh, uh, if uh, if you didn't have the name. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, No, my point is is this data calling it anonymous is a corporate lie it's not a lie it's it's it look, this, this is this is data that requires effort to de-anonymize maybe not no it's pseudonymous effort. not anonymous pseudonymous means that there's some pseudonym a number that is still personally identifiable information. And I think the biggest issue is that U.S. law hasn't caught up with the notion that pseudonymous isn't anonymous. I don't know about that, uh, but I just couldn't say de-pseudonymize, uh, uh, so I, uh, I said de-anonymize. But I, I, I agree with you. It's going to turn out that lots of things that we think are anonymous aren't really anonymous. Uh, uh, I'm not sure whether that should always have impact because it does require somebody to take action. And it could be that that action, de-anonymizing it or de-pseudonymizing it, would uh, uh, would violate the law where uh, working with the pseudonymized uh, data would not. So uh, I, maybe the theme of this entire podcast is going to be shutting the barn door after the horse has left. Uh, uh, that's <laughs> certainly true for uh, uh, location. Uh, and uh, turns out that the effort to make toxic uh, face recognition is swimming upstream against an enormous current full of stuff. Everybody is busy attacking Clearview. Cashmere uh, Hill had a, uh, a story that was basically an excuse to write a, a to, to run an unflattering a picture of one of the uh, investors uh, and uh, a long discussion about how all the investors in Clearview AI got to play with the app uh, and identify people as they were walking down the street or sitting in restaurants. Uh, and uh, the the suggestion is, well, that shows they were uh, lying when they said it was really only for law enforcement purposes because they, they showed it to their investors. It was kind of 
a, a piling on, not not a particularly interesting one. The more interesting one was a story that came out later by Anna Merlin in Motherboard in which she actually used the CCPA to ask Clearview AI if they had any pictures of her. They had boatloads of pictures of her. Uh, and it was uh, interesting in part. It showed that they may not be uh, scraping um, – uh, Facebook so much as scraping people who scrape Facebook. Uh, I, and uh, uh, that suggests that uh, uh, they might have a better case against Facebook and Instagram than uh, I originally thought. Nate, what do you think is going on here? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the obviously people are focusing on facial recognition technology, as you said. And, you know, I happen to be a big proponent of, of, you know, imposing some responsibility on technology companies for their technology. The the thing that I worry about, quite frankly, is that it obscures a couple of other things um, when you focus a little too much on the technology itself. The first is that problems build as privacy problems. Um, Really, you have to question how much of a privacy invasion it is to pull public pictures that you've posted on the internet, right? And or to recognize so, you on the street, right? And and so you know, people have I think lost a little bit of touch with what actually is private and should be considered private, and they've lost touch with their own personal responsibility of what they post on the internet. They want uh, anonymity, uh, but they want to be an Instagram influencer and, and post hundreds of pictures of themselves walking around town wearing different outfits. And so um, you can't really have it both ways. And people have to, I think, eventually come to terms with that. The second thing is it tries to jumble different users together and just sort of portray the entire technology as toxic. You know, I think that a properly regulated use of uh, facial recognition technology by law enforcement agencies is very different from uh, a handful of of creepy billionaires running around snapping photos of people at, at restaurants and parties just to show off to their friends or um, spy on their daughters having dinner next to them. And so, you know, I think that we have to, we have to be careful about throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, um, because we certain find certain uses or applications of it um, uh, unseemly and, and really dig into what's happening in these different contexts and consider what we find appropriate if if there are problems with law enforcement uses of this, let's figure out how to to make sure they're not abused or misused by appropriate legal and policy constraints on that use. Um, and if we want to, you know, prevent creepy billionaires from using it, then you know there are ways to do that. So yeah, I I think it's worse. I think this is a uh, a cynical campaign on the part of privacy groups uh, abetted by media to just toxify the technology, to make it toxic for being toxic, just like uh, uh, the Kardashians yeah. are famous for being famous. Uh, uh, we don't even know now why it's creepy. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just bad, and, and everybody, every right-thinking American is supposed to believe that. But uh, um, you know, the original notion was, well, it doesn't work. Uh, but in fact, there's a story uh, here uh, from Buenos Aires saying they've been using it uh, uh, all over the place in Buenos Aires, and the story we're supposed 
supposed to be shocked by is a guy who is falsely accused um, of being a criminal because he was caught on uh, facial recognition. But in fact, the facial recognition worked. The problem was that uh, the accusation got the name wrong. There were two people with his name. Uh, they just, When they decided they were looking for him, they uh, – picked the wrong person, put his photo into the system, and then the system found the guy who had that photo. Uh, this is pretty impressive. This is street face recognition in Buenos Aires using technology that none of the big companies have been using. Uh, this stuff you know, has a pretty substantial effectiveness. Uh, uh, and maybe more importantly, it's Everywhere, if it's in Buenos Aires, the horse is just out of the barn. Uh, there's another company yeah. called Wolfcom that is already sticking it into people's, into police uh, officers' body cams. Uh, uh, the the effort to make this toxic is not likely to work, or at least it's not going to turn out to be toxic outside of ten major um, uh, metropolitan areas. Yeah. And that's why, you know, quite frankly, companies like Clearview have to be careful about who they're allowing to beta test these things for them, right? They have to use good judgment because when you make those silly mistakes, um, you know, they're going to cost you. People will use them to their advantage uh, and leverage them to critique what you're doing and your, your judgment and your trustworthiness. And that's something that they have to try to do. When I talk to companies about this, I, I, I remind them of the World War II movies where uh, the first guy out of the trench is supposed to uh, run up to the barbed wire and fall on it so that the second guy can step on his back and not get caught in the wire. <laughs> I, I, I said, you know, the privacy, these privacy moral panics are just like it. They're going to get through. The, the technology is going to get through. But whoever comes first is going to be lying on that barbed wire a long time and may never get up. Uh, so you really want to be the second guy out of the trench. <laughs> That's just rude, Stuart. <laughs> yes, it is. So the Justice Department has a memo out on how to do research on the dark web that I thought was kind of really interesting and a mix between useful and advice and stick up their butt cluelessness. Uh, uh, Nate, uh, uh, how did you read that uh, that memo? Yeah, I mean, you know, on the one hand, you know, having worked at a tech company in this space, this kind of guidance can be very useful. Um, these are, uh, you know, murky areas of the law, to say the least. And, you know, there are important aspects of these laws that you don't know where DOJ is all the time. Um, you can, you know, as, as companies have done, they've approached DOJ and asked them questions and DOJ to their credit has tried to come out with some useful guidance. And I think there are certain ways in which this guidance is useful. Um, but at the same time, you know, as DOJ is prone to do, they're cautious in their advice that they give the public, right? And so there are a lot of places in this memo where I feel like they kind of walk up to the line, but don't really take a position on things, right? It's, it's in a lot of ways more about issue spotting for people than giving them clear, concrete guidance about how to, to behave. But I, you know, it, this is something that, you know, I think more and more researchers and private companies are trying to um, figure out how they can 
understand these threats, how they can identify vulnerabilities that are out there, for example, and and try to um, obtain them so that they can close these loopholes in their in their software. Um, but there's a lot of danger associated with venturing down that path. And I think, you know, I guess that, that is to say, this is a, a space that's ripe for DOJ to help them um, sort this out. And it, and it has some significant advantages to doing so. But, you know, this, this memo is just, I think, a, a, or this, this, guidance is is just a small first step in my opinion. I think you're right. It's a nice try in many respects. In some cases, it, it actually leans a little forward, but it, it quickly retreats always to saying, but, you know, that could be uh, viewed as uh, um, conspiracy to uh, commit a crime. Uh, right. uh, the, one, the, one, the one place where I guess I, I, it's fair to say there is really good guidance is if you run a dark net uh, website and you want to make sure that you have kicked out all of the uh, 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 the undercover agents from legitimate organizations are you all, this is like a a, a how-to guide uh, <laughs> you, 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 you just say okay before I'm willing to sell this this uh, uh, credit card data to you you acknowledge that I am a specially designated national under uh, U.S. law uh, with whom you may not uh, lawfully contract. Uh, uh, and, you know, even if you aren't, uh, the, the this this memo says, well, you can't do that. That's a crime. Uh, and so I, I, I do think that uh, uh, in trying to write these rules, and I, I feel for them because if, if I tried to do it, I'm not sure I'd do a lot better. But in trying to write these rules, they've probably helped the bad guys at least as much as the good guys. I fear you may be right. All right. Nick, new FAA drone proposed regs have people up in arms in the uh, drone community. Uh, are they right to be? Yes and no. So it's not really the new drone community, but the old drone community, the model aircraft crew. Because the big takeaway from the new regulations is that with a few geographic exceptions around existing model aircraft hobby fields, all UAVs above half a pound in weight need to continually broadcast their location to a central database. So it means going forward, all drones above half a pound need a cell phone, a GPS, and auto updating. And that's this, expensive. Course, that's right. That's not that's not cheap. Yeah. Uh, if if you knew you had to have that, you could probably uh, uh, get it pretty inexpensively, except for the uh, the data charges. But uh, um, yeah, I can see if you if you've been flying uh, model aircraft for thirty years, this really sounds like a kick in the butt. Yeah, and it is. For that community, it's also a kick in the butt for DJI because DJI, it basically obsoletes a huge number of existing drones unless they have retrofit kits. Going forward, I think this is actually necessary and not that expensive. It costs about uh, 60 bucks production cost to add this in and 10 bucks a month data cost, if that. So it's actually reasonable from a cost basis. And I think the hobby community doesn't recognize the necessity of not adding exceptions to this rule, that 
if you had some sort of mechanism for experimental exception, you'd basically end up creating a loophole big enough to fly a drone through. Right. I think they they did say, look, if you want to start a place where you can fly without this stuff in Montana, uh, we'll we'll give you a one-year license to go out to Montana and screw around. Yeah. Basically, the existing... hobby fields can be grandfathered in, but it's only for a limited time and event, and uh, they won't increase the number of grandfathered areas. They will only decrease that over time. So it is going to be really disruptive for the hobbyists, um, but it's a necessary evil because without this, we're looking at big issues upcoming. So, Paul, uh, uh, Microsoft and Google and Facebook and the other big uh, uh, platforms signed up to an international set of principles for looking for child sexual abuse material on their networks, uh, uh, meant to be kind of best practices, voluntary self-regulation. They got the Earn It Act anyway, which is taking away their 230 uh, uh, immunity unless they follow best practices that are going to be put together by what is now a uh, uh, 19-person commission. Um, It looks like the Earn It Act has changed, but not too much. Uh, uh, Any surprises in this? I think it was always the case that they, they could sign on to all the best practices they wanted. Justice is determined to pursue and earn it. And they got what looks like Two uh, Republicans and three Democrats, Feinstein, uh, uh, White House, and Blumenthal. Uh, uh, the the only person they're missing there is Klobuchar, the other uh, former prosecutor. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if she joined uh, as well. Uh, uh, any surprises? Well, I don't think she's going to join until she finds out whether she's going to be vice president or not, or vice presidential nominee. Um, look. Industry is always desperately trying to avoid regulation by doing self-regulation. That's been the case in every regulated industry I know of uh, that sees the specter of it. The chemical industry after 9-11 tried to avoid the CFATS regulations by voluntary standards. It didn't work. Government is the alpha predator in the creation of rules and regulations. And uh, this is tech's turn to be broken to the wheel. Whether or not the Earn It Act is how it happens, or in the end, it's going to be some form of antitrust uh, violation uh, and, and litigation, or or uh, CCPA privacy stuff, I don't know. I'm not at all surprised that child pornography and child exploitation is the camel's nose under the tent. It's always the exception, um, you know. Even back when uh, you know people were trying to re-erect a wall between intelligence and law enforcement, there was always a ch- kitty porn exception because, well, nobody can be in favor of kitty porn. I don't think there's any chance that Earn It passes this year, given the fixations that we have on everything from elections to coronavirus. But uh, in the two-year period after next year, It'll be really interesting to see how it shakes out after the election. Depends, obviously, on on who wins, who loses. But boy, it's going to be a brutal fight next year. One thing to note on the Earn It Act, though, is that this is actually a case where government regulation would allow the offenders to go free. Here's why. The way we detect child exploitation material is bulk search for known bad material. 
And a fair number of companies do this voluntarily. And so far, whenever they've tried to do a state actor doctrine under the Fourth Amendment, it hasn't flown um, because it is voluntary. And you can point to companies, <coughs> Apple, that do a very poor job of it and companies like Facebook that do it very aggressively. If Earn It Act was supposed to actually stop the problem, it would effectively have to mandate bulk surveillance. If you mandate bulk surveillance, you're going to get state actor issues. And as a consequence, you wouldn't actually be able to prosecute the offenders. I don't think you're right on this, Nick. Uh, uh, the way that's set up is um, there is a heavy incentive to do uh, searches because you'll be running the risk of liability if you don't. Uh, but running the risk of private liability does not mean that, uh, that the creation of that liability makes you a state actor. Uh, and, and so I think that they could still say, yeah, we did it voluntarily. Sure, we were worried about liability, but uh, uh, people do a lot of things to avoid liability and we don't treat that as state action. So I, I, Except I, I take that there is a state uh, action requirement that if you know about it, you have to report it. So by creating a burden to know about it, you are creating a burden to disclose. Well, we'll hear that argument. And I'm just not. I'm just not sure it's going to prevail. Uh, in part because the consequences would be so staggering uh, and so offensive on a policy ground that I think the courts will be a little slow to embrace that theory. Uh, but we're going to. We're for sure going to see it. Uh, uh, I would much rather have the theory that. It is reasonable to do bulk surveillance for this and actually just go out and mandate it, um, mandate it on the endpoints and let the ACLU uh, fret and haw. But I much prefer thinking about it in a DUI checkpoint style. So we don't try to do a backdoor mandate for bulk surveillance. We just do a front door. It's like DUI. DUI checkpoints have withstood constitutional scrutiny. Interior checkpoints for immigration have withstood constitutional scrutiny. Let's go that route. Okay. That, that is certainly – there is certainly a possibility there. Uh, um, uh, but I think you know uh, the, the folks who have signed on to this are uniquely seized of the – uh, impact that potential changes in liability can can have. They're mostly good lawyers, many of them uh, uh, close to the a plaintiff's bar, and I wouldn't be surprised if the plaintiff's bar is behind this somewhere. But uh, uh, we ought to close this up pretty quickly. Uh, Paul, Australia is looks to me as though they're planning changes in their law that would allow implementation of the U.S. Cloud Act uh, so that they must be pretty close to having an agreement with the United States. Are they going to be the first past the post? It, it, it sure looks that way, which is surprising since, of course, you know, the whole idea here was that this was driven by the UK. But, you know, they've been they've been mired in Brexit and and the and, you know, just the distraction of that. Um, I, I think it's a great thing. You know, I, I think that the Cloud Act is a wonderful formula for uh, transnational data sharing that is both respectful of separate sovereign concerns and effective in allowing uh, people to, uh, you know, governments to combat uh, transnational crime and terrorism. For, for people who haven't followed it in detail, the Cloud Act just says essentially that it is possible for the U.S. government to serve 
uh, production orders on foreign uh, foreign uh, entities that uh, uh, either do business in the U.S. or are covered by one of these agreements. So this would allow Australia to do the same to U.S. companies and the U.S. to do it to Australian companies. When you think about it, this is a sweet deal for Australia, which well, it, it always has been. The the big benefit of the Cloud Act has always been. Um, I mean, the benefit to the United States was relieving uh, all domestic companies of any concern about the legality of responding with data that was held in an overseas venue. The carrot for our allies and partners like in the Five Eyes, the UK, Australia, was by and large, there's a lot more that of ad data that we have that we can give them than that they have that they can give us. And so they now have access to Microsoft, Facebook, Google, uh, on a one-for-one uh, -one basis. It's a pretty sweet deal, yes. So the, the, the last uh, uh, topic I wanted to cover in any detail was uh, uh, the U.S. imitation of GDPR's uh, uh, data uh, embargo uh, rules. Uh, I, you know, uh, we've been complaining bitterly about the uh, um, position of the Europeans that we can't that uh, Europeans can't export data to the United States uh, uh, because they don't trust our government. But it's quite clear now. Two cases that came out uh, uh, in just the last couple of days uh, uh, under CFIUS demonstrate a complete lack of trust in what happens to Americans data when it when they go uh, their data goes back to China uh, so uh, there's a hotel tuck uh, a technology firm called stay in touch that was bought by uh, Beijing Shiji uh, and uh, they're being told they have to divest the company, even though that was uh, acquired uh, two years ago. They're complaining bitterly about that. Uh, uh, but that's a CFIUS decision designed to protect the data of Americans. Uh, and Grindr, uh, uh, which is also owned in China uh, and has lots of data on everybody who uh, isn't straight in America. Uh, and uh, uh, they, too, are uh, being are, are saying they, they've decided to sell their social media Media app uh, for some six hundred million dollars, probably because CFIUS is pushing them to uh, uh, to do it. Uh, so we're going to see uh, uh, data embargoes in all directions. It looks like. Uh, uh, and then last, let me just do some quick hits. Uh, uh, there was a Chinese security report by Chihu uh, three hundred and sixty saying they figured out that the CIA had hacked Chinese targets. Looks like they figured it out by uh, looking at, at the Vault Seven tools and saying, "Huh." Those are CIA tools. What do you know? Uh, not a very good report, sort of a disappointment uh, uh, meant to, I think, say we can do, too, what uh, uh, U.S. Um, uh, forensics firms have been doing. But they're going to have to do a lot more to, to, to match the quality. Um, or match the quality of Kaspersky. Yes, even Kaspersky has done much better on this. Uh, um, so the FISA court uh, has said uh, that uh, people who are under investigation uh, uh, for having screwed up past FISA applications can't submit any more uh, uh future uh, uh, applications, not much of a surprise. They added something to the standard orders uh, or the affidavits in which people say, we haven't withheld any uh, information that casts doubt on uh, the reasonableness of this request, which is a, a, a useful thing. Considering that they uh, they got David Chris to write them a report and they uh, uh, asked a bunch of hard questions of the FBI, this doesn't seem like They've done a lot. Uh, it's as though they 
basically said, well, we think that the political actors have this well in hand and we're just going to uh, um, tinker around the edges of uh, uh, FISA reform as a result of the uh, 2016 uh, uh, problems. Next week, we'll cover the Cyber Solarium report. It's coming out uh, Wednesday. Um, there are uh, chunks of it are leaking. Reactions are um, range from uh, something above lukewarm to cool. Uh, it, uh, it does not look as though that will be a dramatic transformation of our uh, uh, cyber defense posture, but we'll wait to see. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, I. Nick has suggested that we should have anti-sponsors here, people who really should have paid us not to be covered. Uh, and uh, um, Joshua Schulte has figured out a way to do that. Uh, uh, Paul Rosenzweig is on the program. He was also a, uh, a, an expert witness uh, in that uh, in the prosecution of Schulte for the Vault 7 leaks. Uh, and so we aren't covering it today, even though there has been a uh, mostly mistrial uh, uh, today. Uh, um, but we will cover it uh, uh, next week. Uh, so that's it for our news roundup. And now let's turn to Glenn Gerstel and our interview. All right. So, Glenn, we can take off the uh, uh, the earphones and just uh, we're actually in the room. This will probably be the last interview I get to do in person as, uh, uh, as we start engaging in social distancing. Uh, but looking back, you, you served in – both the uh, Trump administration, the Obama administration, in a pretty significant. You certainly had a ringside seat for a lot of policy debates, um, I, and you you were there a long time, five years. Uh, what uh, what is the most important thing you think, or the, the most interesting thing you learned uh, from doing this? Well, first, Stu, uh, let me say thanks for having me back well, on the program. Glad to have you. Uh, I was on a couple of years ago, and your ratings immediately plummeted. And it's nice to see that you're we've, uh, we've crept back, but crept yeah, back, yeah, you can and, do and real this, damage. This is, this is really going to test the resilience of your of your <laughs> listenership here. But uh, but but thank you so much. Uh, I need to pay you something to destroy the first uh, set of tapes. Uh, we can talk about that separately. But anyway, uh, to your question. Um, Look, it was a you, you were my predecessor by a couple of people removed, uh, so you know how fascinating it is to be the general counsel of the National That's Security cool. Agency, which is the largest agency in the uh, in America's intelligence community, and uh, does does some amazing things. So it was absolutely, uh, despite how hackneyed it may sound, a privilege and an honor, and just fascinating. And and indeed, I was. Uh, a witness uh, a ringside had a ringside seat to some history, uh, both in the final uh, year, year and a half of the Obama administration and in the beginning of the uh, first couple of years of the Trump administration. Um, and all the things you could say about the Trump administration uh, were, were true, which is that there was a very, very significant turnover of personnel for the first year or so that we had a lot of people who were had not yet been nominated. And so that definitely had an effect on 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 just the just the daily interaction of, of senior people. But to your point about um, what was the most interesting or most significant, um, probably like like everybody, I guess we're all a prisoner of our own experience. So I would say that coming, not having been served in government at this level before and only having been a volunteer here and there on the edges of things, the, the, thing, the, the two things that struck me um, were on the level of how different it was from my business world, which is one, 
the way our executive branch is set up, each agency fights zealously for its own uh, prerogatives and perspectives and, and statutory authorities. And the people in those agencies generally zealously guard them. And so I wasn't prepared for the level of interagency discourse and negotiation that, that has to happen. And, and I want to be very clear. I'm not being critical of that system. Uh, that, that's the system we've got. And, and through the interagency discussions and back and forth, we hopefully get a, a better answer. But what surprised me was that unlike in the corporate world, where in a big corporation, the marketing department might feud a little bit with the operations department. But at the end of the day, they all reported to the same CEO. They knew the stock price was going to be the factor and everybody would sort of get in line. That's not necessarily the case. You could have people in the State Department or Commerce Department or somebody else who are just taking a view antithetical to that of the intelligence community. And yes, we're all interested in in good faith and preserving the country, but but very, very different ways of getting there. So so one was just not being prepared for the scope of, of interagency discussions. So I have a, discussions. one, one footnote yeah. on that. Yeah, sure. In my experience, yeah. what you described in the corporate world is true except for companies who already have a franchise where the, so they know they're going to make their numbers no sure. matter what. Sure. And then the, the money is just rolling in. Right. Right. And whether you can't really do anything to stop it or start it. And when that happens, people start having turf fights over who gets to take credit for money Ab that's coming in anyway. Absolutely. And, I'm, and I certainly know lots of internecine battles in corporations that I had uh, – there were clients of mine. So I, it, I, it's, I'm not presenting it as a black and white picture. But, but nonetheless, it's orders of magnitude different in a federal government, which is just organized in a completely different way. So I wasn't really prepared for that. The offsetting factor, which I, again, also wasn't really fully prepared for, is just – the extraordinary amount of talent in the defense and intelligence communities, and particularly the intelligence community that I dealt with, the, the senior people there and the middle managers are all really outstanding. And uh, put aside the questions, I mean, the, the obvious patriotism and the reason these people are there when they could clearly earn a lot more money in the private sector, most of them, if not, if not almost all of them. Um, but just seeing the, the the sheer levels of talent at the upper levels um, was not something that I had personally experienced Given my lower levels of government interaction over just as a over the years, so so that was a a really nice positive thing to see. I also, you know, because what NSA does is often so technical, um, and they are willing, by and large, at least they were when I was there, to share it. There, there was a, a strong culture of saying we gather the intelligence and then we give it to everybody. Uh, they their turf fights were. More rare, uh, it seems to me. Uh, there, there were very few people who said, yeah, I want to go out and, and uh, try to apply technical talent to these problems because they didn't have the technical talent to apply. Uh, and they didn't get – they didn't fight over – uh, who got credit for the intelligence because NSA was happy to gather it and hand it off to somebody else who could take credit for it. I think that's definitely true. The, the, the culture there, because of the very nature of what they do, which is use technical means to obtain foreign intelligence and then, and then disseminate it. That's their job is to disseminate that intelligence in a meaningful form. The culture there is a little different from, say, famously the CIA, where they are much more about protecting human sources and, and individuals, and you, you can understand that, and, uh, and, not, and not so focused, although they obviously understand the need for sharing. It's just a, it is a different culture. And we saw that uh, change slightly after the, um, the Snowden situation, where um, the, the agency and was criticized for having a more of a, a perhaps a lax approach to some things and, uh, and, and definitely made efforts to tighten up its, uh, its approach. 
So did did you actually see other agencies sensing weakness, trying to uh, bite off a, a, a chunk of uh, the NSA's activities in the wake of Snowden? Uh, not really. I, I wouldn't say so. I think I think the nature of what NSA does is so technically specialized yeah. that it's very hard for any agency to really in, intrude in that area. There are there are some edge cases where uh, you'll get yeah. some agencies, such as the again the CIA in its own area or the NGA and NRO in their own areas, will 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 quibble over the exact boundaries of signals intelligence. Where does it start and stop? But by and large. Uh, everyone recognizes the special expertise of the NSA and its incredible uh, technical foundation. And so um, and so I didn't see too much of that in the turf So area. what about Cyber Command? Cyber Command is intimately tied to NSA and yet um, has a different mission, different culture, probably doesn't like being quite as dependent on uh, NSA as they mostly are. Uh, how does that relationship play out and how has it changed? So Cyber Command is only several years old, as you, as you know, and so it, I think it, it, it's still still in, in growing mode, uh, growth mode. Um, uh, I was struck by the fact that there was an extremely uh, symbiotic uh, level of uh, a relationship, uh, very close collaboration. I would routinely meet, for example, with my counterpart uh, in um, in the U.S. Cyber Command, who was the staff judge advocate, the top lawyer for for the command. But um, there are separate lines of authority, uh, completely separate statutes, really separate missions. But but they would inform each other. And so NSA would find out about something that would prove useful for Cybercom and pass that information on. Cybercom might discover something in the course of its operations that would in turn tip off uh, NSA. And so there was a lot of mutual uh, feeding back and forth. Um, having said that, uh, they are they are they are cohabiting, so to speak, and this, they're in the same building. They have this share the same director. Maybe they may be in the same enemy uh, networks. <laughs> and, and, and and that is of course the value of having the same person at the head, which is the same person at the head, the person who serves both as the commander of Cybercom and the director of NSA. In this case, General Paul Nakasone currently um, is able to make those decisions as to uh, what the trade-offs are between the roles of the NSA versus a Cybercom. And that's that's why you need, you so need some, the, the, some close connection. The fights that I kind of imagine are uh, typical fights between intel and, and the military. You've got – you know where uh, uh, the enemy is in a particular case and what they're up to. And the question is, do you blow them up or do you exploit them? Uh, and um, if you're in a network, you probably can't – destroy the network's effectiveness and also continue to steal secrets from it. Uh, and I would have thought that produced regular conflicts between Cyber Command and NSA. Surprisingly not. Um, not to say that it doesn't happen. Of course, there are there are cases of that, but, but uh, surprisingly not. And um, uh, I think it's much more a situation where because of this, two separate roles and separate missions, uh, each agency would, would, uh, would, would try to succeed without making it a zero-sum game without – so if Cybercom wants to take some adverse action against an adversary's network, it would be – try to do it in a way that doesn't affect NSA's own equities and, and vice versa. So not to say there aren't any such cases, but it, much less frequent than you'd expect. OK. So let me, let me change to something that's maybe hot or might get kicked down the road a little, uh, uh, and that's the uh, reauthorization of FISA and the famous program in which uh, um, uh, NSA had access to call detail records two hops out uh, a, in an effort 
really this is something that was started right after 9-11, designed to see if there were people inside the United States communicating out who are also part of a broader conspiracy inside the U.S. by looking at all their metadata. Uh, program created a big fuss uh, when it was first disclosed, uh, understandably. Uh, it was revised by uh, uh, Congress in the USA Freedom Act and about two or three years in, uh, NSA said, you know, we can't make this work. Um, so now the question is, well, should it be reauthorized at all? Uh, and uh, uh, why didn't it work uh, after all of that effort and hundred $100 million went into it? So uh, right now, the administration is continuing to push for a reauthorization in, in full of the USA Freedom Act, which would which includes not only the call detail record uh, uh, program that you described, which which I'll go back to in a second, but also some very important provisions that are relevant to the to the FBI, uh, most notably in the in the business record sense. And if the statute is failed to uh, be reauthorized, then we're going to revert to way, the way the statute was prior to 9-11, which would really hamper the FBI. So, yeah, so because I, I it, would, it wouldn't even give it, national security investigators access to information that every law enforcement right. investigator and so, has. And so every, I think Congress recognizes that uh, at the end of the day, no, nobody wants that vote on their – or the absence of a reauthorization on their hands. So, so something clearly needs to get done, whether it's going to be a, yet another short-term uh, extension or whether it's going to be a fundamental – uh, more more significant rewrite uh, remains to be seen. On the call data records program, there was a lot of concern in 2015 when the statute was being revised following the Snowden disclosures and President Obama said, we're going to change this program. Uh, some members of Congress said, you know, we're going to change it this way to make sure the data is not held by the government, not accessed by the government, but instead held by the private sector and the government can merely query, send send queries to the private sector and they'll give back the answers to show whether a terrorist was in fact calling someone back in the United States to set up a plot. Um, so the idea was good, but but the reality is that we were relying on the telephone companies essentially billing records to, 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 to really simplify it. And those records are, number one, they're constantly shifting for their own business reasons. They're mm -hmm. constantly changing. They're not kept in a form designed to, to be accessed by the government. So we, so the government had to spend a fair amount of money setting up arrangements with, with key telecom providers to, to obtain this information. And it turned out, uh, and when the information came back and NSA looked at it, and this is now all public, that NSA realized that in, in, a, in a number of – significant number of cases, we were unable to verify that the information we were getting back was correct and that we were only getting back the two hop, so to speak, terrorists called Party A, Party A called Party B, and that's it, that information. And once we realized that that was not the case, we said – and I was involved in this decision too we, – we said – Look, uh, if we can't do this with absolute certainty that we're fully in compliance with the law, let's just stop the program. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think that was the right decision. It was a prudent decision, and we made and we went and we went public with so it. You weren't you weren't getting a lot from the program either. Right? At least I, that's I, what the PCOBS report suggests. I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, we could always debate whether uh, thwarting just one plot is mm -hmm. worth uh, how much and et cetera. So put aside those questions. But but it certainly it certainly ha I would say was of 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 very limited and isolated value, and we. Could could debate whether what that value is, but uh, the, the number of orders that are issued under the program is a, is a known number. I don't have it at my fingertips, but it's quite small. The PCLOB report indicated that it was of, of minimal value. The F, I think the FBI has said that too. So um, there are members of Congress who uh, 
and and others who say let's just suspend the program or at least temporarily or at least kill it either kill it completely or suspend it so that if if the if the government wants to resurrect it it needs to give Congress six months notice or something like that. What would you do? Um, I, I think my own personal view is uh, given the, given the political realities of the situation, and I'm influenced by the political. I, I think if I if the political realities weren't the case, I'd keep the program and reauthorize it. Uh, I think the political realities are such that uh, it's going to be very tough to do that. Yeah. So I'm going to be uh, in, in another bonus episode of okay. the Cyberlaw Podcast. I'm going to inter interview one of the five PCLOB members who wrote that report. Uh, so I assume you read it. Uh, it uh, probably uh, uh, participated in the review of what was classified and what wasn't. Uh, what, uh, what question or objection would you have me relay to him? Well, I, I think the the real question is if we're not going if, – if the politics are such that we're not going to have this program be reauthorized at the called data record program. Um, what what else should we be looking at in in an effort to uh, make sure America is is protected from uh, overseas, principally terrorists, but other actors um, who are in contacting Americans and for nefarious purposes. Mm -hmm. And do we have the law enforcement capability to address that with absent some tool like this, I think, is, is the question. Uh, certainly, the intelligence community has lots of other tools at its disposals, most notably uh, Section 702 under the uh, uh, FISA Act. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm most worried about is that the current focus on this program right now, the Call D Detail Records Program, will get mixed up and conflated and confused with the political fallout from the Carter Page uh, mm -hmm. investigation and that some congressmen and senators are going to conflate uh, some of the problems identified in the, I, the DOJ IG's report. Inspector General Horowitz issued a 434-page report with nine recommendations about what to do about FISA and not one of those nine recommendations had anything to do with changing the statute that was all about the FBI policies and procedures. But politically, you'd never know that. If you just read the headlines and heard the speeches, it sounds like we need FISA reform. And I am greatly worried that uh, there will be a misguided effort to undertake some kind of tinkering with FISA, which will not help our national security just to solve some political goal. Yeah. Well, I, no, you're right. The report uh, it, for the first time turned FISA into a four-letter word. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And uh, I'm not sure we're going to get out from under that uh, anytime soon. Uh, uh, so uh, we're, we're coming up on 2020. We are in 2020. We're coming up on the election. Uh, um, do you think we're in a better position to stop the Russians from screwing with our election? And really, how much success did they have screwing with the election? There's a lot of uh, um, uh, Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking about what they did with those uh, ads they bought with rubles. You know, if Michael Bloomberg can't get uh, uh, a single vote in the continental United States with, uh, I don't know, half a billion dollars, I'm guessing those rubles didn't, didn't change the election. Um, but they certainly doxed the Clinton campaign in a way that might have changed the election. Uh, so uh, uh, where do you think we're still vulnerable? So I think we were caught flat-footed in 2016. And actually, Stuart, I would push back a little just my personal view and uh, on on what what level the Russians uh, what level of success the Russians had in 2016. And I, I, I would say it was not insignificant. Um, 
Yes, I understand your point about Bloomberg spending uh, millions and millions and not, but but that's different from an influence operation. And it's very hard to measure the success of an influence operation, which is fanning the flames of divisions that already exist. And uh, uh, does that exactly lead one to, is there a one-to-one relationship between that and a candidate getting elected? I don't know, but it certainly certainly was not good, certainly exacerbated uh Something America's divisiveness in 2016. But boy, the contrast you know, having the I see no role for the National Security Agency in trying to stop foreign governments from fanning flames of political debate. So, in the so, United so States. clearly the United, so clearly NSA is not going to be involved at all in any any matters domestic. Period. Full stop. But. Um, but we, but the NSA is involved, and U.S. Cybercom is is involved in um, trying to understand what our what our adversaries are doing in terms of influencing and interfering with our democratic elections, and and in the case of Cybercom, being in a position to 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 stop that or thwart it. So, and I think we saw that in the 2018 midterm elections, uh, and and now. In the 2020 elections, we've seen some joint statements from senior government officials saying that uh, we're doing everything we can to ensure the elections. Obviously, uh, time will tell. Uh, and we're, what, one of the things we're worried about is the, the actual not election, not only election influence, which is uh, sowing discord with fa- everything from fake videos to fake Twitter posts, et cetera, um, but actual interference. And we've all seen these studies that indicate that uh, changing vote totals in a mere handful of swing counties could have a significant impact on the Electoral College. And boy, just think of the chaos that would so if in fact it actually happened. But also think of the chaos it would ensue if merely there were seemingly credible allegations that it had happened. Which is and, more, much more likely. Which is I, much, I, I much think it's more very likely. very hard to actually they yes. reliably uh, change. I, 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 will, I will agree with that. Uh, not impossible, but but – but yes, I would agree with that. Um, and you even have some old-fashioned mechanisms like this woman in Florida who just hand-changed a voter registration rolls. So don't forget the old-fashioned form of plain old good voter fraud. Uh, that's an all-American activity too. Yep. Okay. So um, I, yeah, my, my, well, let me then ask. Uh, we had a an opportunity in 2018. Cyber Command did some things designed to mess up uh, the uh, messaging capabilities of uh, the Internet Research Agency and some other things that they were a little less forthcoming on. Do you think that uh, uh, we've got a lot more game than we had in 2016? Well, I think there's no doubt that we've learned both from 20, 2016 and 2018 and uh, we're now we now have much much tighter integration between NSA, the um, which would find out about foreign adversaries' intentions, the U.S. Cybercom, which is in a position potentially to do something about it, and then working hand in hand with DHS and the FBI. Uh, so there's now much more of a coordinated government approach to recognizing that we need to we need to be proactive in protecting uh, American elections in the democratic system. So so I feel I feel pretty good about that. Having said that, uh, you know the nature of the thing is it's a bit of a whack-a-mole, uh, which is to say that while we could stop uh, an individual foreign actor from doing something here, uh, it's the low cost of entry is uh, pretty significant. So it's possible for someone to pop up and do something else, and. Unlike in 2016 and 2018, when we were principally focused on Russia, um, who knows what what future elections will have, and who knows what uh, 
whether there are other adversaries who have the capability of, of doing something in this area. And uh, will we be in a position to monitor 10 or 15 or 20 countries is a, is a big question. Yeah, because uh, well, <laughs> maybe they'll balance each other out. They'll, uh, uh, you know, right. I think if, if Bloomberg had uh, gotten the nomination, my guess is that uh, China would have been on his side in a heartbeat. Yeah, uh, so we'll uh, see how that breaks out. Yeah. yeah. So I... Coming to a, a close, a couple of more sure. questions. Sure. You, um, George Kennan is famous for the long telegram from Moscow setting out the uh, uh, strategy for dealing with the Soviet Union uh, in the Cold War. Uh, and one of your departing uh, uh, efforts was what I call the long op-ed uh, in the New York <laughs> that, Times. It that really just means was, it was soporific. You know, most was, people fell asleep halfway through. It was really – well, it was – there was – the problem with it was that it had a structure. You had to read to the end to see the, uh, everything you were saying and to understand how it all hung together. But yeah, that meant that uh, you must have uh, – I don't know what you have on the New York Times editorial board that they let you run that much. Um, uh, but let, It was let me actually – I believe they, they told me it was the longest op-ed they ran. Of course, it was you know, on – not in print, on the on the, on the the online, which actually got a greater readership. So it, it did uh, did get some some significant – so and and um, I went back and, and read it. it. It was fascinating. It's a real musing on what the next ten years of technology development uh, hold for U.S. national security and the National Security Agency. Uh, and I'm not going to ask you to summarize it, but uh, um, let me ask you to take the five G problem and abstract it away just from five G to what. What does this tell us about the kinds of challenges we're going to have that we've not faced in the past internationally? Sure. And the 5G problem is a good example of that because it shows the the complicated nature of this and how we were un, unprepared for it. And in some ways, just to – well, to use a current – Current environment uh, for a second. The the uh, sadly the, uh, the the problems associated with the coronavirus um, actually are very similar to the threat posed and challenges posed by technology to national security. I mean, we've got four or five sort of attributes at play, and they're they're true in both. Which is, on one hand, we tend to underestimate the threat and to think conventionally about it. So, you know, we've got, I don't know, 900 odd uh, hospital, 900,000 hospital beds in the United States. But if three or four or four, five million people got sick, well, we don't have space for them, but we don't think that way. So we, number one, we tend to think conventionally. Number two, on the other hand, the pendulum swings the other way and there's a bit of a panic. So today's stock market gyrations are, are reflective of that. Um, we're number three. We're, we're generally uh, just as an actual reality matter. We're just underprepared. We are in fact not prepared for these these things that are foreseeable in some respects. And people have talked about global pandemics. People talk about the technology uh, threats, etc. It comes at a time when we have lots of other things to worry about, too. So it's not as though we can devote all of our resources to this. Again, same thing with coronaviruses and technology. And then finally, and I think the most significant, is the speed and scope of technology. And now using the virus as this as this uh, analog uh, exceeds our ability to catch up. We're not going to catch up to it, uh, or it's unlikely we'll catch up. So that's all true for technology and the threats and challenges. Uh, lots of benefits from technology. I'm not an anti-technology by any stretch, but I'm just saying – we think too conventionally about it. And the and you mentioned 5G, which is a great example of the complicated nature of the interdependencies, um, how we have didn't think 
carefully enough and did not have an industrial policy that promoted the manufacture of telecoms equipment in the United States. We do that, by the way, in the area of shipbuilding mm-hmm. and submarine building. So we, we make sure that we the United States retains, even though it's not economically prudent, to have, to have the ability to build submarines and aircraft carriers in the United States. It's a lot cheaper to build them in South Korea, but but that's not what our program is. In the case of telecoms technology, we let that all go offshore to China, to ZTE and Huawei. Simply showing the complicated nature of the global interdependencies of technology. Technology doesn't know any boundaries. Um, we can't just turn off Huawei equipment. I mean, we're trying to in the United States, but for rural carriers that have to rip out uh, mm-hmm. millions of dollars of equipment, this is a major issue. So 5G is a perfect example of how we're it's foreseeable in the sense of had we sat down and thought about it, we might have recognized the problem, but we didn't act on it. We're underprepared, and it's a complicated uh, problem to address. So let me let me pivot from that to the challenges for NSA. You said 702 is very valuable. It is. It's enormously valuable. It depends on U.S. companies having access to communications that they have fostered around the world. Um, and yet increasingly the companies that do this are finding that it might be in their interest not to have access to that information, to encrypt it end to end so that they can tell people their privacy is totally protected. Um, it wouldn't take much to turn 702 into a dead letter. Uh, Now, inside the company, they can do a lot of analysis to identify, for example, people who are grooming children uh, uh, without even seeing the content. Uh, And you could probably find a lot of terrorists that way and a lot of foreign agents just looking at the metadata. Uh, But we don't have access to that information. Uh, There is no analog for looking at metadata in these new, more modern systems, uh, uh, no analog to the 215 program, the call detail record program that uh, is, you know, that has been shelved. Uh, And so my question is, do you think we're in a position where companies that have access to this kind of information that could be enormously helpful for national security purposes and who are American companies are actually going to step up and, and provide the assistance that uh, uh, we might have gotten from AT&T 20 years ago? Yeah, all fascinating questions, um, raising everything from issues such as lawful access, which is mm-hmm. where, where government has a, actually has a, a warrant or a, a subpoena or whatever, and a lawful access to, to get encrypted communications, which is a separate piece of that. There's the intelligence component, which is what you're raising, which is uh, um, whether uh, the intelligence community is going to be in a position to access uh, this this tsunami of information that's going to be generated by 5G, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, which will create its own massive yes. amounts of data, uh, uh, et cetera. Um, I think the challenge, uh, and then and then the push generally to encryption, which is both encryption on devices as well as encryption for data in transit and in the cloud. Uh, right now, not not it is not universally the case that all data in the cloud is is encrypted. In part because encryption, uh, at least as it's now structured, um, s- uh, still presents user functional problems. I yes. mean, if you, if you if you lose your password and your data is encrypted, that's a problem. So you need a password reset mechanism. Well, a password reset mechanism is a vulnerability, right? Yep. I mean, so. Uh, so there's lots of issues there um, we, we could spend a lot of time on. But but broadly to your point, I think uh, the the increasing uh, move to encryption, 
um, and the explosion of data generally are going to present challenges, uh, both opportunities and challenges for the for the intelligence community. Opportunities because there's now more data to look at and analyze and examine and find out if a terrorist refrigerator is saying something meaningful about the, the terrorists. So that's that would be nice to know. Um, but uh, also uh, a challenge in the sense that we're going to need to find the terrorist refrigerator in the middle of 18 billion other refrigerators and pieces of data, et cetera. So, so it's a, it's a, I would say it's a, both an opportunity and a challenge. And I think the, the issue for the intelligence community is given the scope of the challenge, will they have the funding available and the political will to, to address that? And do you think that the U.S. companies in Silicon Valley even want to cooperate? I think it's a mixture. I think I think the companies are patriotic and want to do the right thing uh, by and large. Um, but when it then comes time to applying that in a real world case with their business model, uh, sometimes those conflict. And I and we're seeing differences. Uh, there there are some companies that are that are uh, more willing to to assist and 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 recognize that they have valuable data. And I think one of the challenges for our society, looking ahead five ten years from now is the private sector is going to have way more data about individuals and businesses than the government would even dream of happening, uh, having. And, and we're going to need to decide as a society what, what that means. I mean, we're, we, the Fourth Amendment applies to government, not to the private sector. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it shouldn't continue to apply to the government, don't, don't get me wrong, but, but when the private sector has so much more data, that in effect gives them almost political power in a, that is uh, very, very significant. I think our society needs to grapple with that. So uh, this has been terrific. What are you doing next? That's my last question for you. Well, I'm uh, trying to catch up on some sleep since I don't need to be at Fort Meade at 6 a.m. anymore. So that's good. Um, I'm uh, I, uh, I'm uh, very honored to be able to join CSIS, the Center for Strategic International Studies, as a senior advisor. And there I want to assist them on Couple of projects. One of which is this issue of uh, of, of encryption and and figuring out what makes sense for our society in that regard, and then just generally the threat and challenge posed by technology to national security. So I'll work on a couple of those. I perhaps could find a company that's willing to lower its standards enough for, for me to serve on their board, maybe or as board mm -hmm. of advisors or something, because I was a business lawyer. So I'd sort of like to marry my expertise in that way. And in Hong Kong, and, among other places, right? It, it, exactly. So I served overseas. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'd like to be involved in the business way in some way. I'd like to continue to contribute, although I don't know exactly how uh, in the public sector. I'm not looking for another public sector job, but I, I definitely want to stay involved since I've learn something at taxpayer expense, I, I genuinely feel like I'd like to continue to pay back, and that's a that's a good thing. All right. Glenn Gerstel, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks also to Paul Rosenzweig, Nate Jones, and Nick Weaver for joining me on the News Roundup. This has been Episode 304 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. If you uh, like having the interview as part of the News Roundup, uh, or if you don't, uh, we are asking people which would be better. Uh, and if you go to steptoe.com slash podcast poll, uh, you can uh, vote uh, on uh, which you'd rather uh, do, continue to tie the News Roundup and the uh, interview together or uh, separate them into two feeds. Not counting this particular They, they don't, don't get the don't, vote don't, on don't, you. Don't let this, this particular one influence your vote. Just consider it in the abstract. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> okay. And, and further comments and uh, suggestions, uh, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com will get it to us. Uh, be sure to leave us reviews. We, we read them all, and sometimes we read them out loud. Uh, and then join us uh, uh, really tomorrow uh, as we uh, interview uh, P-Club member uh, Travis LeBanc. Uh, and uh, next week, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. Thank you.